This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Hello. Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be back with you. This is a fantastic conversation with Isaac Sharp, who wrote this book. I'm not sure if it's reversed or not. It probably is. It's called The Other Evangelicals, A Story of Liberal, Black, Progressive, Feminists, and Gay Christians in the Movement That Pushed Them Out. This is a very important conversation for us as New Evangelicals because Isaac reaffirms that there has been um, an intentional effort by Christian fundamentalists, essentially, to push people out of the evangelical movement who do not 
assimilate into not just their theology, because many of these evangelicals do, but um, who don't assimilate into their, their political views or sexual ethic or have a different uh, interpretation of scripture. So this is like a history lesson 101. It's so insightful. Isaac, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Folks, the book is out now. I recommend picking it up. It's a great read. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Of course, I do want to say to everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you for being here. It means the world to have you listening. If you like the show and you want to help spread the word, feel free to share this episode or give us a rating or a review or like and subscribe on either you know Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube. And if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people. And we offer all of our content completely free because of the generosity of people like you. All donations are tax deductible. And um, yeah, you can you can uh, click on the link in our show notes and donate, and that would be so awesome. So, without further ado, friends, here is my interview with Isaac Sharp. I hope you enjoy it. Big news, friends! The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Floor. Now, Noah and I went last year, and it was an amazing time. We met so many of you, and we're doing it again this year in October. You'll get to hang out with podcasts like ours. You have permission with Dan Coke, the Bible for Normal People with Pete Ends and Jared Bias, and so many more. And there are amazing scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ord, and John Dominic Crossan, with more speakers and podcasts to be announced. The sooner you get tickets, the cheaper they are. In fact, if you use promo code TNEGODPOD, you'll get $25 off your ticket. Let me tell you something. If you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, this is the event to come to. Yes, you get to hear from some amazing speakers and hear some amazing lectures, but the secret sauce in beer camp is that you get to hang out with these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Use promo code T-N-E God Pod for $25 off your ticket. And I'll see you in Missouri in October with me and Noah, Trip Fuller, all the great scholars, all the great podcasts. I'll see you then. All right, friends. Well, I am. I mean, I, I kind of say the same thing every time I do these interviews. I was like, I'm not going to lie to you, but it's because it's legitimately sincere. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I think this will be one of our more, um, I don't know. I think it's it's kind of pointed um, and and like poignant for like what we do as new evangelicals. So, friends, I have Doctor Isaac Sharp on the podcast. Um, I already gave you the bio and introduction, so I'm not going to say the same thing twice. He is the author of The Other Evangelicals: A Story of Liberal, Black, Progressive, Feminist, and Gay Christians in the Movement That Pushed Him Out. David Gushy, who's a friend of ours, uh, did the forward. I'm a big fan of, of David. He's awesome. So, Isaac, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you for making time yeah thanks for having me this is a, this should be fun uh we got some uh, uh clear and obvious overlap here uh with uh <laughs> titles in fact i uh a couple of times uh saved it in my calendar as uh just the other evangelicals interview because uh, I'm stuck in that mi- in that mindset so yeah new evangelicals other evangelicals I have a feeling we have a lot to talk about I love it. Well, I want to start here. I mean, obviously, you wrote a book about evangelicalism and, and a whole different stream that maybe a lot of us were never exposed to. How did you grow up? I mean, my my guess is that you grew up somewhere in these spaces, but maybe I'm totally wrong. I would love to know, like, were you birthed in the evangelical movement or like, what's your background there? 
Yeah, so this is a, uh, there is maybe even another book or three here in, in the answer I'm about to give. So I will like try to keep us not going too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, but, and here's, maybe this will be a teaser for the next uh, actual project I'm working on. So I grew up uh, in, uh, I'm originally from East Tennessee, uh, Knoxville, okay. Tennessee, actually, and I uh, spent several years uh, after growing up in Tennessee in Atlanta, Georgia, before I moved to New York uh, City. My background, I originally uh, grew up in the uh, Southern Baptist tradition, uh, which interestingly enough, um, in the area uh, of the country I grew up, uh, there were uh, so many Southern Baptists uh, that this is, well, this is part of the explanation. This is part of the teaser for another project I'm kind of working on. Um, the Southern Baptists uh, that I grew up around didn't really use language of identifying with, uh, identifying themselves as evangelicals, uh, actually. Mm -hmm. It was uh, more so uh, identifying with the denominational tradition. That has changed a bit, actually, since uh, I'm yeah. not that old. But in the past few decades, um, the Southern Baptist Convention has come into kind of the, a foremost place in uh, contemporary evangelicalism, such that you get uh, Southern Baptist leaders who um, are regularly identified, and rightly so, as uh, influential evangelical leaders. But that wasn't always the case. Um, right. so yeah, there's a, there's interesting dynamics, uh, going on there. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, there, that we'll, we'll, we'll leave that piece at that for now. Fair. Okay. So, and you grew up, so like in these kinds of movements then is what I'm hearing you say, like you're very familiar with them. So, I mean, what, how did you go from that to writing a book about the other evangelicals? Like what's the personal story behind that, that, that got you into this work? Yeah, so there you when you mentioned uh, David Gushy being a friend, um, I there's a lot of interesting connections there uh, and overlaps in some of the things that he and I have worked on. Uh, we've worked on a lot of collaborative projects together, including this. Uh, he wrote the forward here. So some of the early, uh, well, let me zoom back. Let me rewind and zoom out just a little bit. I did my master's degree at Mercer and studied with David Gushy, who was my master's advisor. And then uh, he and I worked together for a year before I started my PhD. We, one of the earliest kind of dominoes that started falling in my thinking around this question of evangelical identity specifically, because that's in part what the book is about. This is this evolution of what it means to be an evangelical uh, in the contemporary U.S. context, some of my initial explorations of what that of the implications of that label and what it meant actually happened uh, while David Gushy and I were working together on a book um, called Evangelical Ethics. So hmm. he and I, between us, had to start the kind of good-natured debating, wrangling, pushing back and forth about uh, who goes in the book. Uh, for a book about evangelical ethics, uh, how do you decide who goes in that book? And right. one of the tasks in my uh, research for that was to begin sorting through different criteria for what it means to be an evangelical. And mm -hmm. one of the things I started noticing while we were working on that book is that there was something going on with this question itself. Like the, the question of who is in and who is out, which we were having to make decisions about for, you know, 
a book that uh, is a reader in evangelical ethics, you have to make decisions about who, who gets featured. Um, right. As we were doing that research, I started noticing that there was something going on with this question of what makes someone a real evangelical uh, and that there was there were lots of interesting debates that were kind of going on behind the scenes in 20th century American Christian context about this very question. And mm-hmm. from there, started stumbling across um, interesting figures in what I would call 20th century evangelical history who I had never really heard about um, in you know, popular coverage of evangelicalism or in the um, you know, official evangelical outlets, there were these figures that I uh, started, that I and we started running across in, in that work uh, that uh, were uh, folks I'd never heard of. And that was an interesting dynamic, right? And so some of the, the as I started pulling on this thread, um, they're one of the kind of teaser, here's a teaser preview for some of the work in the book. Um, there was a reason I had never heard of them. It's part of is part of what is is part of what is the the strand I started pulling on. Long story short, from there, uh, I did a uh, I started my PhD here at Union Seminary, working uh, with Gary Dorian, um, specifically initially looking at evangelicalism, evangelicals, and LGBTQ questions, uh, but had always had interest in these questions of religion and race, religion and politics, and. So yeah, I uh, along the way uh, hmm. saw that there. I think there's a story here to be told. Yeah, you know, I I gotta admit, like I grew up in what I call this evangelical tradition, which I I think a lot of people, and you probably agree, is hard to define and kind of pin down. I mean, you know, Kristen Dumay has some thoughts on it. I know David has some thoughts on it, and there seems to be just a lot of debate of like, well, there's like this cultural evangelical thing, then there's like the theological agreements and even those are pretty different and then you know one of the books that kind of gave me a taste of how broad and um diverse um evangelicalism is is the book uh, discovering an evangelical heritage by donald dayton written in 1960 okay <laughs> yeah. so i read that book it's a super i mean i have it on my shelf it's it's it was a, a fun, for me a really eye-opening read of like wait a second some of the early evangelicals were egalitarian. They were abolitionists. They were crazy, socially minded, incredibly pious. Like, okay, these seem like my people. So yeah. like what happened from that to like Al Mohler, for example, right? right. Where you have like this right. opposite um, um, kind of movement. So I-, I know we're talking about a very big, <laughs> complicated thing. It's almost like trying to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe in one episode, right? We're trying right. to uh, right. cover so much. But I mean, just to kind of give us a baseline, are there some key either cultural and or theological things that go into making an evangelical that kind of crosses all of these different little um, subcultures that we find in the movement? So there, there's this is this is going to be a fun this is going to be a fun answer to this question for, for this for <laughs> this particular for this particular reason because. So Donald Dayton actually features pretty prominently in in the intro to the book. Um, oh. He featured much more prominently in the dissertation itself. So a, a little, uh, and I promise I won't go too far down the rabbit hole here, and I'll answer this question. But this is this is an important piece of this puzzle. So there, the 
my dissertation was much longer, like maybe twice as long as the book, and a big section that fell out of yeah, yeah. pretty thick book already. Yeah, dude. yeah, yeah, no, 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 right. This is <laughs> Jesus. A, uh, so there, there's a lot, there's a lot left over. So there's like maybe some other, there may be some other uh, pieces in the works coming out of the dissertation. In fact, this one is one, this one may be one of them. So Donald Dayton's work actually features pretty prominently in this question of the story I'm telling for this reason. He was one of the examples of somebody who, in, as, I w- as David Gushy and I were starting to do work around this question of, of having to do the definitional work, or at least acknowledge the definitional work, right? It's a slippery question of what exactly is an evangelical, what is evangelicalism. Right. It's, it's the, right. the joke I tell somewhere in the book is it's like the... Uh, the Supreme Court justice and hardcore pornography. I it's hard to define, but you know what? When you see it, uh, right? right so this yeah, is right, one of the, right, like, yeah. This yeah. is this is the things. But Donald Dayton features prominently in the intro and in the ch- in a chapter that fell out a little bit because Donald Dayton was one of the early folks in the 20th century U.S. evangelical context who started to make um, who started to push back on this on this idea of a kind of canonical narrative of the evangelical story, right? So Donald mm. Dayton um, it moves moves in the evangelical world of the uh, mid to late 20th century, um, gets a distaste for specifically the increasingly right-wing politics of uh, the evangelical world, um, is, has, is trained as a historian, starts looking back at the broader arc of evangelical history and, and says, you know, there's more to this than what happened here. In some right. ways, this book that I, uh, the book in the dissertation is, is a similar kind of project to Dayton's in some way, although I include discussion of him as a player in these um, debates, because part of what I'm arguing is that there's, um, now to now to try to rein back into your question of of this like def, to this definitional question, yeah. Part of what I talk about in the book and try to do is at least to suggest that one of the things I think is going on in popular coverage, but not just popular scholarly discussions of evangelicalism, is folks using different definitions. Uh, for what it means to be evangelical or for evangelicalism, historical, theological, sociological, without even recognizing that they're using different definitions and yeah. arguing past one another because they are using different definitions. That's, right. one, of, that's one of the points I'm trying to make in, uh, with the book. Another, though, is that these definitional debates in and of themselves, whether they be historical, theological, sociological, often it's never purely one or the other, right? It's never mm. just, or, or, you know, never strong. But often the theological debates over a theological definition of evangelicalism or a historical debate or a sociological debate are making theological debates, making historical assumptions, historical debates, making sociological assumptions, so on and so forth, without acknowledging that. So in some, so some of the stuff that I'm trying to do is a little interdisciplinary in that way, especially in the intro discussions of to, to, to try to, let's see if I can try to land this plane on this, 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 this answer. Cause I've gone on too long um, there. When you get these debates over what it means to be evangelical, there's lots of different disciplinary assumptions that are happening. And 
it's never yeah. so easy to neatly sort one from the other, such that yeah. you get evangelical theologians who are making historical claims. And one of the crucial things that I, one of the interventions I was trying to make is to suggest that this very question of the power to define of who gets to make that call is right. one that we should be asking more because it is yeah. taken for granted. Yeah, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I for a while kind of wrestled with this when I started New Evangelicals. I was still in conservative evangelical spaces when I started this account um, that became what it is now. I was just like, hey, I'm kind of worried about this whole Trump thing and like the COVID response. And and I didn't know what I was stepping into. All of a sudden, I discovered this term deconstruction. I'm introduced to black liberation theology for the first time. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is there's something here that just grabs me, right? And all of a sudden, I'm finding like Pete ends, and I'm like, oh my gosh, biblical inerrancy might not be what we think. So, like, then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, my name though online is the new evangelical. So, like, what do I do with that, right? And ultimately, what I have found, because, like, for example, um, if the audience uh, out there listening, there is like one feel, uh, like, dis- there, there is a set of distinctives. I actually pulled it up by historian David Bebbington that's kind yeah. of like seen by many people as like, the four pillars uh, and the four pillars are conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism, if I said that word correctly. Um, And so, you know, those are kind of the four things, but also reading Donald Dayton and kind of like realizing that like there's more going on here. I got to a point where I'm like, listen, evangelical means good news. I don't think evangelicals today bring good news. We have to bring good news back. New evangelical, boom, done. I did it. You know, like I squeezed the evangelical label. I kind of reframed it and we can still keep the title. But I will say the more I dig, and I'm I'm not the academic in this conversation, but the more I'm reading and digging, the more I'm like, you know, I understand this like white evangelicalism, but I just wonder if there's more going on in our history. And, you know, they say, right, like, you know, the winners write history. And so I'm looking, I'm like, I wonder if there's more going on here. So something that grabs me right away about your book and the subtitle is a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians. I'm like, okay, these are all the things usually that people who I follow, and I, I have no problem dropping names, that's my job, so that you know, people like Al Mohler go, nope, not Christian, sorry, you can't be a feminist and, and Christian, you can't be gay and be a Christian. I mean, Franklin Graham wrote an article about the dangers of progressive Christianity, essentially saying if you're a progressive Christian, you're going to hell, right? So the, the current 2023 evangelical gatekeepers i call them they are emphatic that 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 such evangelicals do not exist and definitely not well definitely not christian let alone evangelical so talk to me about like maybe give me like two or three examples of people who blow away these categories who you would consider evangelical and then i want you to tell me why they're evangelical like that part i need to know as well the floor is yours yeah so yes this is um what you are describing, right, this move by those who would say, current move, right, at, or contemporary in, contemporary in the sense that this would be happening now yeah. in, article, in articles you know, or interviews by fo- books by folks like Al Mohler and Franklin Graham, um, which are, are, you know, I think correctly identifying e- current evangelical gatekeepers. Um, this move to suggest, on their part, to suggest that um, someone who is a progressive Christian, liberal Christian, gay Christian, for instance, is not really um, a Christian. Is I think you're exactly right in diagnosing the what 
what somebody like Al Mohler or Franklin Graham would be saying, and and definitely not evangelical. Part of what I and so that that actually is part of the story I'm telling in the book is that that kind of move to suggest that um, there are certain things that are off limits for true Christians. Um, be it a social issue, a political issue, a theological difference, is exactly how evangelical identity was gatekept, I guess, in the past tense, uh, across the 20th century, and you see it happening right now. So in part, what I am suggesting is that that that, that kind of move by somebody like Al Mohler or Franklin Graham has been going on for a long time, and that that gatekeeping move um, on the part of evangelical leaders um, is is a central story in the 20th century history of evangelicalism. And that part of the argument that I make is that evangelical identity, what it means to be an official card carrying in the, in the group evangelical in the contemporary context has been shaped by these gatekeeping moves. Right. And by, and that there's a story there about the folks who, uh, we can use the we can use Bebbington for as the the Bebbington quadrilateral uh, is the the way that folks talk about those four you know instead of the criteria. Wesleyan quadrilateral that's funny yeah this is this is it no the Bevington, they call it the Bebbington quadrilateral right the four things you name uh, after the British historian David Bebbington who who identifies these kind of four common features in across evangelical history um, one of the things I'm arguing is that in the 20th century U.S. context in particular. There are folks who might have met any, all of those criteria, for instance. And yet, something else, there was something else that was, um, that in this nebulousness of what it means to be evangelical, and the, it's difficult to pin down and define what evangelicalism is, it's a transdenominational movement that is, uh, yeah. cannot be reduced to one kind of institution, you... Uh, another way to describe this is, you know, there's no evangelical Pope, there's no evangelical Vatican, there's not the, you know, there isn't an officially recognized hierarchy of folks who will, who can say, yes, this is exactly what it means to be evangelical and there's disagreements. So what right. part of what I'm arguing in the 20th century U.S. context is, you know, using the Bevington quadrilateral as, as an example is that there were folks who might have met those criteria who disagreed about who disagreed with the evangelical power brokers about a particular theological issue uh, about uh, a political point a um, a way to vote about a cultural distinctive about certain interpretations of a few biblical passages an example that I've used before is um, you you know you you, you mentioned inerrancy uh, rightfully. Uh, it is the case that inerrancy in the 20th and 21st century evangelical context has been one of the kind of uh, perennially debated fences around evangelical, what it means to be in or out of evangelicalism. And I, one, of the, one of the things I try to highlight in the book is that you, even at points in time where you would have groups of folks who say, yes, I am evangelical, and even I affirm the inerrancy of scripture, you have this problem that regularly shows up in 20th century and into 21st century evangelical context where disagreements over interpretation of an authoritative Bible lead to power struggles because they're 
you have this problem, right? So you have two evangelical thinkers who would say, um, yes, we both affirm the authority of the Bible, but we interpret the passages about women uh, and right. whether they should be ministers differently. Right. Part of what I'm arguing is that that frequently led in 20th and 21st century evangelical context to these power struggles where the winner would define the loser out of the category and push mm. them out and say, you not only just do we disagree about this passage, but because you disagree, it must mean you are not really an evangelical. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying this, what I, in my mind, I'm like, yes, I've experienced this. And I also, <laughs> I mean, I, I've experienced it personally in my own like previous churches, but even on a broader, like, like social media level, right? Cause I'm really active on social media. I, it's part of the work that I have to do. And I've noticed, and I, I bring this up often like I always ask people who are like more of these like conservative evangelical types. Okay. Like what's the orthodoxy? Like what's the absolute right belief for me to be considered a Christian, right? Because I, I affirm the apostles creed. I affirm a physical resurrection. I affirm to pretty standard evangelical like beliefs. Okay. But because I'm queer affirming, I'm suddenly not a real Christian or because my, right. my position on, on how we help reduce abortion is different than outlawing it and potentially criminalizing doctors for it. I'm no longer a Christian. So I have found as well that when you meet these people, you can say all the right things until you get to one thing, just one, you know, that, 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 that for them is like a new orthodoxy and suddenly you're defined out of the category. Right. Which yeah. honestly, if I'm being honest with you, Isaac, that I kind of take a little bit of pleasure knowing that I'm kind of a thorn in the flesh by keeping the evangelical name and being like, sorry, not your name to own. Like you don't have, well, some people do have patents on things like worship leader, but as of now, there's no trademark, you know, on evangelicalism. You right. don't own it. And and people like me can push it in different directions than what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Can in history, and I, I again I know we're speaking really broad here. So with that assumption, a very broad brush, can you speak about some of the other threads of evangelicalism that were more um, for sake of context, maybe more progressive than what we see now that we're faithful evangelicals. So this, everything that you just described is, is um, in some way mirrored in the story that I'm telling such that one of the things that is, is fun for me about getting to now be on this side of finishing the project is to talk to folks who say, I have, I have this experience where I, I, I thought I believed all of the, all of the core distinctives. I can check off the Bebbington quadrilateral. I affirm the authority of scripture, whatever. I, and, and I thought that I was, uh, that I met the criteria and then discovered somewhere along the way that there was something else. That was another criteria that is not in writing, uh, in the, uh, you know, and in part, cause there is no, you know, other than institutions that are capital E evangelical institutions that have their own statements of faith, but even in those contexts, sometimes it would happen that folks would say, I can, I can sign that. And yet, uh, then when it comes time for the next election and I vote differently, all of a sudden my <laughs> faith is called, my, my faith is called into question. Or right. I interpret a certain passage differently. Or I don't uh, read uh, Genesis as a literal <laughs> account of a six-day <laughs> creation. And then all of a sudden my faith is called into question. 
this is these right. are the stories that, in some way, I'm recovering in the book. Right? Is that th- this is this was a common experience for folks in 20th century evangelicalism to say, "Yes, I meet all of these criteria," and then all of a sudden there was one thing that I that I diverged from the prevailing or the prevailing unspoken orthodoxy of the evangelical gatekeepers. And then I found myself on the outside to this, 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 um, this, your question around evangelicalism and political conservatism. That's, that's a big chapter of the book. And one of the most distinctive, I argue aspects of Contemporary evangelical identity. This is one of the most common stories that folks know. The rise of the religious right. Evangelicalism is associated with conservative politics. That story in particular in that chapter, um, the the progressive evangelicals, uh, is part of what I'm doing there is saying that it was not always the case that evangelical identity was closely aligned with contemporary Republican politics. In that chapter, I also build a bit on the fantastic work that folks like David Swartz and Brantley Gassaway have done on the history of the evangelical left. Mm. I, I take a slightly different diagnostic approach to what they, those two folks are doing, but uh, I am super thankful for the work that they, they did on the history of the evangelical left. But one of the interesting things to me is that to your point about this, about this discovery, like all of a sudden I was, you know, with, with Trumpism or contemporary politics, uh, you all of a sudden are, uh, can become a pariah in your own community very quickly. One of the interesting things to me about that particular dynamic in contemporary evangelicalism is the, that there are a lot of folks who have no idea that there was a, a politically progressive evangelical movement that was, significant and fought for a different kind of evangelical politics for a lot longer than a lot of folks remember. And it was a, it was, it was never that I never tried to go for the fact to, to argue that this was like a majority of the evangelical world, but it was a significant movement that actually um, I agree with the, the the folks who um, do this kind of dating that actually predated the rise of the religious right. So you get in the sixties and seventies, groups of uh, progressive, uh, politically progressive evangelicals who say, who say specifically things like, we are theologically conservative in all of the ways that evangelical theology is usually defined, and yet, or not even and yet, and because of that, because we are theologically conservative and take the witness of the Bible uh, very seriously, we are politically progressive because we take the Bible so seriously that we are we must vote for common good measures that support anti-poverty that do that keep people out of poverty and we fight poverty and we fight racism. And these folks um, got steamrolled in the evangelical world by the rise of religious right. Uh, many of them, again, this, this is where, where these conversations are super fun because when you say uh, uh, this, this move to say, no, 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 you know, I'm not giving up this label. This is something that, this is a dynamic that happened too in the stories I'm telling. Some people, some of the folks who would, um, especially on this politically progressive question, 
Um, Donald Dayton is a good example, actually, who by the end of his career, he said, I don't know. I no longer identify with that label. I can't. Mm. It's beyond repair. Um, yeah. I, yeah. There's nothing I can do with this label. I don't identify with it. It is so associated with a certain kind of theology and politics that I want nothing to do with it. Then there were other folks like, for instance, Ron Sider, uh, recently mm-hmm. um, deceased yeah. Ron Sider, who fought his whole career to say, I am theologically by any classical definition of what it means to be evangelical and evangelical. And I think wealth inequality and global poverty should be top on the list of political concerns for any person who claims to follow the teachings of the Bible. And he was absolutely vilified for it. He was called, <laughs> he was called a socialist and a heretic and any... Yeah, of course. You know, and, and so this is part of, um, part of the story mm. I'm telling. And, and specifically, a slightly different... Um, di- the, the slight difference in diagnostic track I take from... from um, the great work of folks like David Swartz and Brantley Gassaway is what I argue is that one of the most effective ways that politically conservative evangelical leaders undermined and marginalized politically progressive evangelicals was to say, those are not real evangelicals. And you get, and one of the most, one of the most interesting stories that I I pull in that chapter in particular is uh, about Jim Wallace. So Jim Wallace Mm -hmm. is another name that a lot of folks might be familiar with. Um, Uh, an active force in uh, progressive politics for, for many decades now. Um, Jim Wallace, uh, back in the, uh, before the religious right was the only game in town in evangelical culture, um, Jim Wallace and the early sojourners uh, community um, would uh, stage protests around things like uh, um, uh, weapons, uh, fighting against, uh, staging protests against war and this kind of thing. These are, you know, evangelicals for peace. Um, Jim Wallace, uh, is featured in, in news articles and you get, um, interviews with Jerry Falwell at the same time Mm. saying things like Jim Wallace is not a real evangelical. Um, Mm. and there's two, there's two interviews in particular that I, I highlight in that, that chapter. And here's, and this is the kind of like concluding example of, what I argue happens to um, the, pr- the politically progressive option in evangelicalism is those folks were really successful. Folks like Jerry Falwell were really successful in convincing people that what it means to be evangelical is political conservatism. And two, yeah. two of the just like interesting quotes that come in there, you get um, one time uh, Jim Wallace and Sojourner's folks are, are staging protests uh, for peace and, and, Jim Wa- and Jerry Falwell is quoted as saying, you know, that Jim Wallace is about as evangelical as an oak tree. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's a, like, I don't know exactly what he means there, except to suggest, right. <laughs> you know, suggest that he's not a real evangelical. Another yeah. example is you get, um, uh, I think it was a Tavis Smiley interview uh, with Jim Wallace and uh, Jerry Falwell. And, and you get this moment where Jerry Falwell trying to poke at Jim Wallace to say is not, you know, he's not a real evangelical. The way he goes for it is to say, okay, tell me who you voted for. Did you vote for, you know, Reagan, Bush, all of this? And in and, and Jerry Falwell's uh, view of what it means to be evangelical, that's enough to disqualify Jim Wallace from being a real evangelical. Some people take the straight path in life. But at Arizona State University, we respect your twists and turns. They make our online students more driven to excel in their professional lives. That's why our personalized suite of services empowers you with innovative resources and staff that sticks with you. 
Make your next turn with one of our 300-plus programs at ASU. Number one in innovation for nine consecutive years. Visit us at asuonline.asu.edu to learn more. Right. Yeah, I mean, listen, I have, I mean, man, there's so much that I, I could respond to. I, I, yes, to all of that, I think a lot of us have experienced so much of, of what you just described in our own life. And then we start doing the work and we go, oh, wait a second, like the religious right, you know, kind of pushed things in a certain direction that became, you know, right wing politics that became uh, really synonymous for evangelical, but it wasn't always that way. Um, so like, yeah, a thousand percent. And I guess like what is frustrating to me is that I could not agree with you more. In fact, I did a video uh, on this, um, arguing that like fundamentalists are not good fundamentalists. I say, cause if you read the, 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 the readings of Jesus or James five, you know, where the Bible says, Hey, if you, expl- if you're a business owner and you're exploiting your workers, you're in a lot of trouble. Right. So I, my point was like, guys, for some, for, for, for people who tell us the Bible's clear, for people tell us that, you know, just read the scriptures and it's self revealing, they have a really weird take. Like, we're not forgiving debt every seven years. We're not concerned about the poor among us because they're probably too lazy and don't work hard enough. Like, it's even if I held to, to a very much, if I held to an inerrantist, inerrantist view of scripture, which I did for a long time, just reading the gospels would tell you, Okay, I have to love my enemy. Okay, we we have to think about about, about how we're feeding the uh, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, taking care of the sick, or else we're in risk of we're in risk of judgment. Like you would just walk away with that, right? But for some reason, it's like okay, if you don't want to um, make all abortions illegal, and you really if you don't hate gay people, but we don't call it hate, we call it love, but it's hate. Uh, and if you don't want and if you want less guns on our streets, aka by gun regulation, uh, sorry, you're just not a real Christian. You're not a Bible believing Christian. And there is a type of gaslighting that I think goes on where you're like, wait a second, <laughs> like, wait, wait. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm reading through this gospel thing you told me to read, and there's no argument for carrying AR-15s in the streets. Like, I'm sorry, it's just not there. So I agree with you on that part. My question to you is like, what happened to that progressive? evangelical movement where they just bullied out was there more funding from from right-wing donors to kind of control the, the the narrative what's the story there yeah so this is the um it, and when you, when you talk about the, the personal experience that you have a bit of what i am hoping goes on with the book is that folks can read it can read some of these stories because I go for I, I do some some biographical sketches in the chapters so of these figures who are the other evangelicals I like to include some of their biographical um, trajectories to give folks a sense of their stories is that folks will feel maybe a little less alone so when you're talking about right like a whole, holding to inerrancy for um, agreeing, saying, you know, I, 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 I held to that uh, understanding of the Bible for a long time and just couldn't get there in terms of the prevailing interpretations. You have this um, example, particularly sticking with the progressive evangelical movement of folks like Jim Wallace and uh, John Alexander, who say, the I, it, it, at some point in my life, as, as I was confronted with um, the, the, the extremely right-wing politics of the evangelical world I was in or 
the horrible record of the evangelical world on like civil rights issues, um, bringing race, bringing race into the picture started question, you know, am I, am I a Christian? And what they in part were questioning was the prevailing orthodoxy of the gatekeepers handed down to them. And you get this example of these folks who, who specifically explicitly in the stories I tell say things like, but then I revisit, but then I like uh, Jim Wallace is a, is a prime example. He says this in some of his, bi- his own personal accounts of his, bio- his autobiography where he said, I, I, g- I gave it one more shot and I sat mm-hmm. back down and read the Bible and really read the Bible. And then I was surprised by what I found. I had mm-hmm. been handed this, these interpretations all along. But then when I sat down and read the Bible, I see this prevailing concern for the poor in a way that I was not presented in the evangelical world that I was raised in. And it radicalized me. You get this story happen several times with uh, these, these uh, many of these other evangelicals throughout the, throughout the book. What happens in part, I mean, the short answer to the, what happened to specifically politically progressive evangelicals is the religious right happens. It was an incredibly mm. effective uh, it was an incredibly effective, uh, politically savvy organizational machine that uh, essentially summoned a bo- voting block of uh, evangelicals out of American Christians and yeah. defined what it meant to be evangelical in the popular and sometimes scholarly consciousness, such that mm. these folks, part of what I argue is these folks became the capital E evangelicals, the ones that everyone went to for comment on, on any on political voting issues. Um, every, there's a cycle that happened uh, from the eighties forward where every three or four years, evangelicals re-enter the news and it's because there's about to be an election, right? Mm. So evangelicalism gets very closely associated with politics and with right-wing politics. Now this is not to say, and I do caution in the chapter, not to say that they're, um, that there aren't politically progressive evangelicals still or a diversity of views on political issues. It doesn't, it doesn't, it never maps as neatly as we like to say, but, sure. but yeah. the, the progressive evangelical movement as a movement that was, uh, gaining ground really did get just kind of destroyed in terms of the broader evangelical culture. And one of the ways that I suggest that it happens is around this kind of like definitional wrangling where you get the gatekeepers who are politically conservative saying those folks aren't real evangelicals. Platforming, whose books get published, who gets featured in, in um, publications like Christianity Today, who gets to be an official evangelical theologian. All of yeah. these wrangling are ways to more tightly control what it means to be an official evangelical. And a part of what I end up suggesting is that in the long run, the folks who were politically conservative did a really effective job of kind of putting a trademark proprietary uh, (laughs) claim on the fact that evangelical um, identity just means politically conservative, politically conservative. Um, Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it is, it is, I mean, unfortunately I kind of know that part of the story, you know, like I, I, I know like when Jerry follow hops on the scene and, 
you know, all this stuff. And also uh, there's a great book by uh, J. Russell Hawkins called The Bible Told Them So. Yep. Um, uh, really great read that just kind of documents how, listen, hate to tell you guys, but like Southern evangelicals were incredibly staunch segregationists who fought like hell to maintain segregation even after uh, it became outlawed, right? And so it is frustrating, I think, for a lot of us because, you know, I, I was homeschooled for nine years. I grew up in like the heartbeat of conservative evangelicalism, John MacArthur reformed theology. And then I discovered the more the charismatic stuff, all still in evangelicalism. And I, I thought I knew, like, I thought I knew, like, oh, yeah, moral majority because of abortion. And, you know, and, and that we want to stop the slaughter of the unborn. And then you discover, like, actually, you know, Jerry Fallow got politicized because of segregation and trying to maintain segregation in schools. And, and, and that just kind of opens up, like, this world of, like, oh, my gosh, like, we've been on the wrong side of history so many times. And then we fast forward to today, and it just seems like there's no end in sight for – I agree with you, um, Isaac. It's not that there aren't, like, progressive evangelicals. I mean, like, for example, Shane Claiborne, I think, would be uh, maybe someone in the modern era who's, like, one of the leading voices of this, like, progressive evangelicalism, great communicator, prolific writer, et cetera. But people like Shane, at least in the evangelical industrial complex, right, are largely like either seen as eh, probably not a real Christian because he's more progressive or like he's kind of out there. So I'll read his stuff in private and maybe like secular media picks him up, which only reinforces to the evangelical insiders that, you know, Shane's part of the world, right? So it is like this self-fulfilling system and then you have people like you know john MacArthur and whatever doing their thing I i'm wondering for you like do you think this term evangelical can be reclaimed i mean am i just you know am i just swinging at, at air here am i just pissing in the wind frankly i mean like what am i doing you know swinging the bat trying to say hey guys evangelicalism is much more complicated and broad and can always be redefined every generation based on the needs and context of where we're at but I don't know, man. Is this is this a fool's errand? So this the uh, a couple of things, and I, I, I will <laughs> I will give you, and I will give you my take because you'll get it anyway a bit in the conclusion. So there's no use there's no use too much hedging about that, and I will I will Perfect. say a bit about that. But but part of I think what you're identifying there that I also try to bring out in the book is this question of power, right? Yeah. This especially in terms of the who gets to define, right? Yeah. Um, the it's 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 all well and good to even for those who um, are evangelical gatekeepers to say uh, at times to acknowledge the the explicitly or implicitly that there is some diversity on certain issues among evangelicals and not every evangelical has to agree with every piece of the puzzle and yet uh, when push comes to shove those with the power to define have consistently marginalized certain viewpoints in the evangelical world, be it theological viewpoints, political viewpoint, social, you know, or even just, um, uh, stuff, stuff, even more fundamental, right? Like, uh, female voices, voices of women are, have consistently been marginalized by evangelical leadership. Uh, the, totally. the question of evangelical, evangelicals and race is another prime example where you have these, um, evangelicals of color for generations who have said, um, in the U.S. context, yes, I affirm all of these uh, theological distinctives. You would say, and yet, it was some. There were this thing happens where uh, the uh, black evangelicals that I talk about, for instance, um, 
they begin documenting this thing that happens to them as far back as the 60s where they would say, it, it, but it wasn't enough for me to affirm right. XYZ theological distinctive. All of a sudden they wanted to know about my politics or cultural, you know, certain cultural distinctives of black church traditions would uh, be looked at, get sideways glances in evangelical circles. Right. Uh, and that became a thing. And it became um, one of the strategies is to I, uh, identify for someone who would say, I check all those boxes. Um, one of the strategies that evangelical gatekeepers used across the 20th century around various kinds of issues like this uh, would be to associate someone as a theological liberal. Yeah. If you vote this way, that means that you, uh, that obviously that shows a deficiency in your theology. Or uh, even more explicitly, saying things like uh, the black, the historically independent black church traditions in this country, many of which would meet the criteria, the theological criteria to be counted as evangelical. Um, you get white evangelical leaders saying things like, uh, yeah, they're, the black church traditions are just full of theological liberals. It's just liberals. They're not really right. evangelical. And right. it's this this power move, right? To the, those who get to define, draw the circle, and draw the circle. Part of the argument that I make in in smaller and smaller ways with with increasingly more qualifications. Mm. This question of the possibility of reform is an interesting one, right? Um, mm. Because, it, and it's uh, you know my one of my emphases in my doctoral work is social ethics, uh, and this and it's a so a prof profoundly central question in, in social ethics uh, and the work for a more ethical and just society is uh, do, does one stay in an institution and try to reform it from the inside and or does uh, what is the point at which one can no longer uh, associate with something because you know uh, affiliation is complicity? Or, yes, right. or when an institution is beyond reform. That right. is an extremely personal question, I think. And I think that from my, perspe from my perspective, folks will arrive at different responses to that question. And I personally try not to fault, try not to demonize those who head down different trajectories, right? Who say, I, for reasons of conscience, I can no longer affiliate with this. I try not to say, oh, well, you, you know, that's just lazy. You should stay inside and work for reform. <laughs> right, and, totally. and, and also um, to those who uh, choose to stay in flawed institutions, I personally try not to pass too quick of judgment to say, uh, well, it's beyond repair and you are automatically complicit. Now, that's a yes. complicated line to walk. And in the book, in the conclusion, I do kind of give my assessment of the question of, because I think it does feel like we are at a pivotal moment. It, and it's not pure, I, I hate to go like purely generational, but there is a bit of a generational aspect to it where, you know, a younger generation has grown up in this world and are recognizing that, uh, you know, post 2016, that, that, that this identity may be tied to a certain kind of politics more than it is anything else, even, you know, maybe even theology. And it does feel like we are maybe at a pivotal moment again. And I, the, the, the conclusion I end up going for, and this is the danger because anytime you go for prognostication, 
someone will inevitably be ready to come along and tell you how wrong you were to, you know, three or five or 10 years down the road. So, you know, so I'm going to pounce, go ahead. I'm going to pounce right on you and tell you how wrong you are. So be it in this situation. What part of what I argue actually drawing on some of what's going on contemporarily is that it is unlikely that the evangelical power structures in the movement as it currently exists in this country, the way it's the institutions that it is, or, or the you know bellwether institutions of evangelicalism that major re- like reform to the level of revolution to say that there is now you know that that we would arrive to the space where it would be possible for a politically progressive evangelical movement to not be so consistently demonized and undercut and marginalized to start you know to get pushed out all over again is that the powers that be at least currently it's unlikely for major reform for this reason. The power structures as they currently exist in the evangelical world are doubling down on the some of the very dynamics I was talking about around, uh, it is as you say, right? The, the experience that you've had where you say, um, wait a second, what, 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 is the, what, is, what about this is good news, right? This, this evangelical right. thing that's going on. Um, what about this is good news and this fight for, uh, you know, it's often, again, not to go too generational, but younger evangelicals saying, I like Jesus, I believe the Bible, and I'm, I can't vote for this person, or I think we got to work, do better on racism and fighting structural racism, or I'm egalitarian or feminist in terms of my gender politics, or I'm LGBTQ or queer affirming, um, that these folks, you see these efforts and how are the evangelical power structures responding? They are doubling down on controlling the narrative, marginalizing those who would say that and deplatforming in exactly the ways I have, I am trying to describe in the book where they would say, they say things like those people aren't real Christians. Just as one example toward the end of the book, um, in the gay evangelicals chapter, part of what I do in that chapter is, um, show that there were folks who were dissenters on the question of um, specifically um, gay rights going way back in the evangelical world. It was never a huge, it was never a huge percentage, but they were there and they got absolutely demolished and pushed around in the evangelical world in part by the ex gay movement. Um, But in the, in that chapter, one of the like, concluding pieces I, I emphasize is there, you know, in the past several years, there've been recent waves of folks like um, Justin Lee or Matthew Vines who, who say, Hey, look, I, I love the Bible and affirm the authority of the Bible and love Jesus and, and consider myself evangelical in all the classical ways. I just interpret these like four or five passages differently uh, to suggest that it's not saying that gay people are automatically going to go to hell and, you know, so on and so forth. And the response to those folks has been exactly as it was throughout this story where they are told they're not real Christians um, for specifically on and specifically in rhetorically that way, such that you get Matthew Vines writes the book, God and the gay Christian and uh, uh, Al Mohler, in fact, um, and a group of Southern Baptist um, uh, professors write an entire book refuting Matthew Vine's book uh, that is, Uh, and this is, this is another one of those kind of funny anecdotal stories from the book, from my book, where I 
Uh, one of the surest ways you can tell you've run across the, the line of the prevailing orthodoxy is if uh, evangelical leaders write a whole book about your book. Um, Ron Sider, it happened to his rich Christians. Rob Bell. Hunger, Rob Bell, right. This is, yes, Rob Bell's a fantastic example as well. So <laughs> Matthew Vines gets this, the, an entire book that the evangelical power brokers write in response to him, and they release it for free. Of right? course. Of course. And put it out and put it out there and it is a and it it challenges everything that he says particularly on the notion that he cannot be a true Christian because of this interpretation. And yes. that's and and by and it's an and it's uh you know strategically in terms of the gatekeeping uh, and here I'll go you know now I'm getting a little in the you know my, in the weeds for my personal uh, take on this. Uh, that's an incredibly effective strategy and to release the book for free, uh, to put it out there to say, this is so they, to, to, they are, they are saying that we believe this is so dangerous and is not truly Christian that we are going to make these resources that show how unchristian this is available to everybody. And they have a lot of power and they have a lot of support to do that. And so, yeah, this is a long-winded way of, of, of saying <laughs> the take I go for in the conclusion is that major reform under the current regimes of evangelical power is unlikely because they yeah. the power structures are still locked up by folks who define evangelical as not gay, not progressive, right. Republican, right fundamentalist in theology, inerrantist in theories of interpretation, and that and the way that they they are doubling down on saying only these things these are the things that make someone a true evangelical and all these younger folks are being misled by all these progressive young Christians are being misled by false teachers and they're totally. being led astray totally. by the devil. That is the rhetoric and it's really effective. I, I promise you the audience you're talking to is very familiar with that rhetoric. And plus, these power structures are incredibly lucrative. They yeah. get people power. They get people influence, status. They get people money. And I think because many evangelicals, even the ones who don't say it, look at uh, uh, look at the numbers and the amount of money and the books that they're selling as a sign that they're preaching the true gospel. But then... When something they don't like does equally well, then they call it, you know, satanic or they say, no, no, see, look, the world loves it. The world loves it. So that's how you know it can't be good. So they, they really have built this perfect structure where there's an answer for everything, even if it contradicts their own ethics. Um, because, you know, people often ask me, they go, Tim, like the Trump thing, how? I don't understand the Trump thing. And for a lot of years, I did not. I mean, when 2016 happened, I felt like, like my world was just upside down. You know, these people who taught me the sexual ethic are mad at me because I can't cover for, I, I can't vote for the guy who's blowing away that sexual ethic. Like, how is this working? Once you look through the lens of what gives power and control, it all makes sense. Every piece of rhetoric, every angle, every position they hold always comes back to maintaining their institutional power and control over what true theology is, over what Christian politics are, over what sells the books. So once you see that, 
it completely clicks. But until then, if you start comparing like what Jesus said to the actions and behaviors and rhetoric that are either tolerated or supported in these spaces, you will drive yourself mad because it doesn't work. If you look for some kind of consistent ethic that is consistent, despite if you're Democrat or Republican, reformed or progressive, you know, liberation theologian, you'll never get, you're never going to find it. This is why friends, if you're listening, I, I do this sometimes, but just really quick, if you want to know why, especially these far-right Christian nationalist types, like the Sean Foyts of the world, the, the William Wolfs of the world, if you want to know why they're in lockstep with far-right media over talking about groomers in relation to Drag Queen Story Hour, but Many of those same pastors love John MacArthur, despite the several articles coming out that he actually protected a pastor on his staff who molested his own kids and shamed the woman. If you want to know how that how that ethic works, the ethic is John and his people give them power and control, and people who are outside of that, who they think are weird, like drag queens, all of a sudden are a threat to their institutions and challenging their power and control. Therefore, the ethic goes, well, we'll call them sexual groomers, even though as far as I'm aware, not one child has been molested at Drag Queen Story Hour, but we'll be quiet or we'll, or we'll say, well, John's a faithful gospel preacher, despite the overwhelming evidence that he has had pastors on his staff who have actually molested children. That's just one example of, 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 of again, you'll drive yourself mad if you're looking for the consistency. But once you see power and control, it will ultimately click. So Isaac, I mean, I really appreciate, you know, you like making time to explain a lot of this stuff in more detail. I think we have to have you back on or maybe have you on for a Theology 101 class that we do for our, our Zoom people because there's so much here. Like, I, I know we're just scratching the surface. I mean, you're, you said your book is only about half your thesis and it's like 200, it's almost 300 pages with, 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 with notes. So there's obviously a lot here. And I think this is so important because my final thought on this, and I'll give you the final word, is that. I, and I don't mean this in, in the power sense, but I, the idea of evangelical being completely taken over and, and like owned by Christian nationalism just makes me nauseous. And there's something that is so stubborn in me where I'm like, no, like you cannot, I'm not, I understand why folks leave this term behind. I respect it. I, I get it. I would never, no one in our community has to identify as a new evangelical. That, that, that's not how it works. But I'm just too damn stubborn to completely capitulate this term to people who literally some of them want to kill women who get abortions. They want to enact legislation that would give a woman capital punishment if they had an abortion. Sorry. No, you cannot have this title. Someone else has got to fight back, be some sand, you know, in, in the spots that are irritable and say, no, like you, you cannot have this term. So that's kind of how I see the work, part of the work that we're doing and hopefully giving people who, like you said, are, want to be faithful to Jesus, love the Bible, take the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection seriously, who, who want to be good news to their neighbors who want to be active in their communities. You know, hopefully we're giving some people better ways forward where they don't have to choose between, you know, this false dichotomy that, that evangelicals give you of either you stay in this basement of fundamentalism or you become a godless atheist, which is like, th those are two completely different realities, you know, and you can live in the third option of being a Christian beyond their basement. So that's why I keep the term. Um, anyway, any final thoughts on that before I, I let you go? Yeah, there's well uh, tons, and and I we'll we'll, ha we'll have to do we'll have to do something again around uh, all of this because yeah we've we are really only getting at uh, the beginnings of 
a lot of this discussion. So I'm down to come back for sure, uh, either in this capacity or yeah, maybe let's uh, let's talk the let's uh, talk. We can talk uh, theology uh, class questions too, because a big uh, a big portion of what got cut was um, from the dissertation of the book is. Um, charting debates around uh, multiplicities of theologies in evangelical circles, like how the uh, reform, the kind of neo-reformed thing. I have an argument about how that became the kind of the only game in town in terms of mm. contemporary evangelical theology, and pushed aside a lot of other diverging approaches to theology. Uh, so I have an argument there that kind of didn't get as featured in the book. So yes, we definitely need to talk about that more. This power question though is, is I, I think, yes, one of the things I'm trying to drive home is that even if it is this, this definition of what it means to be evangelical is, can be, can be refracted through theological or historical or sociological lenses it is always worth asking about power, right? About who has the power to do it and uh, to make those definitions and um, to acknowledge the the humans are, uh, we have our complex creatures and we have complex motivations and sometimes our motivations, power can be a power, you know, is is seductive. And this, uh, the one, maybe this, maybe I'll go for this one as a, to to riff on something you just said as well as, as the last and then, uh, you'll have to. We'll have to promise to do this again because we really are only getting at the. At, at the there's lots more to discuss on this front. This, this question of seeing contemporary evangelical leaders who one would think would be against the personal morality or behavior of certain politicians or against certain kinds of political or social views. Um, based on what they have emphasized all along uh, and or uh, those who, you know, there is a wreck. There is so it seems to be, there is somewhat of a reckoning going on in evangelical circles right now about the fact that there have been these abuses of power by powerful, often white male evangelical leaders. Part of what I think is going on there is that there is this kind of Manichaean view way of viewing all of reality that often crops up in evangelical circles. And, and by that, I mean this, there is good and evil. There is, uh, us and the world. And, and those on the inside are those who are fighting for good. And those are on the outside are the forces of darkness. And it is, it is positioned in, it is positioned in that way such that, um, lots of sins can be forgiven on the inside if uh, if the leader is uh, someone who is fighting the good fight against the evils of the world, uh, yep. such such that it, it is possible uh, for um, folks in, in on the inside and who would be sitting on the platform together, for instance, to have grace for one of their. Uh, uh, Brother, one of their brothers who make a mistake and not hold and hold that to seemingly different uh, ethical standard than those on the outside, because look at all the good they're doing. That is a profound yeah. dynamic, I argue in the book, for the shaping of contemporary evangelical identity, for what it has come to mean to be an official evangelical, has been shaped in that way, such that um, evangelical leaders regularly position good, true faithful Christians 
as the you know the belie- the beleaguered faithful in here and the dangerous world out there and yes. it is light and dark and it uh, there's a there's a dynamic that's going on there where evangelical identity has been defined as what it's against and one of the most incredibly effective tools uh, you know maybe this will I could go on forever so maybe this will be the last the last piece one of the incredibly effective tools for the folks that I talk about in the book, black evangelicals, feminist evangelicals, is to paint um, those folks who would have a divergent viewpoint like feminists, for instance. I didn't talk too much about them today, so maybe I will have to come back because this one is a big piece of the puzzle. The um, evangelical feminists were painted as feminism is a godless, atheistic philosophy, so you cannot be a Christian and a feminist. And that was an incredibly effective tool for making sure that evangelical identity became anti-feminist despite mm. the fact that there were evangelical leaders who said, I believe in Jesus and I affirm the Bible, and yet I support the full equality of women. Yeah. And they got defined out of the category and pushed out of the history. Wow. Man, you're right. We really could go forever. You know, um, frankly, I think there's a reckoning happening because we're done dealing, dealing with, with putting up with the bullshit. You know, when people like Mark Driscoll, you know, are still platformed, like you said, because they, he's good at othering everyone else, but he, he's, an, he's an abusive, narcissistic pastor. That's the reason. So friends, the book is The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminists, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out by Isaac Sharp. The book is out now. You can get it wherever books are sold. Isaac, it was a pleasure having you on. Where can folks find you? Do you have like a public face or is it mainly, mainly just the book? Where can folks catch up with you? Yeah, so the um, the pre-orders are available now. I think official publication date isn't until the 18th, so next week, but it is available this book will, pre-order This will now. be out way after the 18th, yeah, so don't yeah. you worry. It will be available. Um, it's, <laughs> and I, uh, as far as finding me, uh, maybe sometimes, uh, unfortunately, uh, because it's a weird place over there these days, Twitter is probably the quickest way to find me on the socials. Uh, it's just <laughs> Isaac B. Sharp. Um is my handle and that is uh consistent across social media profiles so yeah come and uh uh, find me and let's chat about all this stuff because uh uh this is fun it is fun all right isaac like like i said it was great having you on keep in touch and we'll figure out ways to work uh together more hopefully uh maybe maybe we can bring david uh gushy into one of the conversations i mean his he's so good with this stuff as well could be a great conversation so we'll talk again soon thanks for your time yeah thanks Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro. 
and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O dot com.